Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I will, as always, be your host today. You know, I, I had a professor in college. He was one of the foremost experts on Marxist writings and the Communist Manifesto, and he's written a few books, all over 800 pages, all long tomes, some of which were used as our textbooks in his course, and they were long and dreary. And this professor of mine gave a piece of advice that I'll never forget. He said, if you're going to write a book and you want it to be successful, make it a short book. There's one business author who has taken this to heart, who has written over a dozen books, one of my favorite of his, being named one of the top 100 business books of all time. Jeffrey J. Fox has authored a dozen books, all short, under 200 pages, including the bestseller and one of my favorite all-time business books, How to Become a Rainmaker, which, by the way, he'll be giving away four free signed copies of these to anyone who tweets or posts on LinkedIn with the hashtag TheGongSales. So post on Twitter, post on LinkedIn, tag us at hashtag TheGongSales, and uh, you might win a signed copy of his book. So who is Jeffrey Fox? Through his work as Fox at Company, he consults with top-notch organizations around the world, and he is a consigliere to CEOs and senior executives. Fox and Company is in the business of helping clients grow revenues and increase gross margins. Prior to starting Fox and Company, Jeffrey worked in senior positions for high-powered consumer industrial marketing companies like his role as vice president for marketing and corporate vice president of Loctite Corp., which makes superglue and other products, which was doing almost a billion dollars in sales while he was there. Jeffrey is the winner of Sales and Marketing Management Magazine's Outstanding Marketer Award and the National Distributors Association Award as the nation's best industrial marketer. He is the subject of a Harvard Business School case study that is rated one of the top 100 case studies and which is thought to be the most widely taught marketing case in the world. Jeffrey graduated from Trinity College, where he was a Capital Area Scholar. He earned his MBA from Harvard Business School and has served as an elected trustee of Trinity College, where he has won several alumni awards, including Person of the Year. He served on the board of directors of St. Francis Hospital, one of the top 100 hospitals in the United States. It was such a privilege learning from Jeff uh, because I've loved his books, numerous ones of which I read and gifted to others. And his feedback is generally specific, it's practical, and it's tested. So, please enjoy and learn from, because I did, my conversation with Jeffrey Fox. And remember to use the hashtag TheGongSales on LinkedIn or Twitter to win a signed copy of How to Become a Rainmaker. Jeffrey Fox, welcome to the gong. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it is such a privilege to be interviewing you. I uh, sent you out a cold email because I've read your book specifically, How to Become a Rainmaker, uh, and then after your recommendation, How to Become a Great Boss, both of which I have sitting here next to me. And you know, when we think about the things I like to talk about in the gong, which is how to construct a sales conversation, especially in the early stages of a startup's uh, books like How to Become a Rainmaker were really, really impactful just as I learned to do this. So I thought where we would start, um, of course, we'll get into all the premises that you think and speak and write about very often, um, but to provide some context, can you tell us a little bit about what you were like as a salesperson when you were in sales and, and what qualities you think you had that made you good? Well, <clears throat> remember, everybody is in sales all the time regardless of their job. If you're a priest, a teacher, a doctor, whatever, you're in sales. And my very first sales job, I was five years old and living in a third floor apartment in Hartford, Connecticut. And we lived on a road, which a street at that time, which happened to, for some reason, have lots of mansions. And uh, there was snow, snowy day. I went next door with my shovel and shoveled off uh this house's front steps are probably two or three inches of snow. And this woman, much older, she's probably 25, uh, came to the door and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm shoveling the snow off your steps. 
She said, what do you want? I said, 50 cents. And she gave it to me. And uh, so I think I learned without knowing I learned it that you give and get. And it's always important to ask for the order. And it's always important to deliver value. And um, so when I was a salesperson, I always did that. I didn't know I was doing that. I always, I just sort of instinctively, not even being trained, used to give the customer money. I used to sell what we now call, what I call, the dollarized value proposition. I never sold on price. I always sold on value. And, you know, if, it's a, if it was a, pharm- a pharmacist when I was working for a division of Procter & Gamble, I sold them the markup money they would make on the products they bought, times the turnover and that kind of thing. And later in Loctite, when I was head of marketing for that company, I called it the, at that time the cost of going without. So if a company had a, a problem like leaking oil or something, and we could solve that problem, the value of that solution, i.e. the oil the guy didn't have to lose and didn't have to clean up and didn't have to take to the landfill, uh, that would cost him that much money if he didn't go with our solution. And later I came up with the term dollarization, which is the definition in dollars and cents of the benefits a customer gets from a product. So if a customer, if a guy has a product that says it lasts longer, then you have to be, that's the benefit. You have to quantify that benefit, which is last half a year longer. And you dollarize that benefit where the customer would, in one year would have to buy two of the competitors and one of yours. So even if yours is the highest price, it might be the lowest cost. And that's what uh, a salesman should do. So when we talk about that, so you talk a lot about dollarized value in all your books. You have a whole book about dollarized value, um, which which makes perfect sense because it's a picture making beyond just the cost of your product being lower than somebody else's, but it's the value of your product being above the status quo or any other alternative. Now, when you work at a startup and the product is sometimes nothing more than the dream or a vision of where you're going, but you're still trying to get those early customers, what are other ways to think about the value that is a, a small early stage company's product or solution or vision or mission might be offering to a customer? Well, the very, the most important, the single most important factor in having a new business success or a new product success is to have a profitable customer. That's the single most important factor. So in a startup, with the guys have the ideas and so forth, they have to be thinking about who is the target customer? Who would buy this? Who would invest in this? Who would, who would use this product? And why should they? And you ask yourself the most important question in business is this. If I were the customer, knowing what I know about the marketplace, the competition, my product, etc., if I were the customer, why would I do business with me? And if you can answer that honestly, objectively, hopefully in terms of dollars and cents, you, you have a start. So many startups don't do that. They fall in love with the new and novel idea. And I used to do that a lot when I was like a new products director for clients or for companies I worked for. Sometimes I'd fall in love with the idea and not fall in love with the fact that I needed a customer, someone who also would fall in love with the idea. So that's the first and most important thing. Who could be a customer today or with 100%, 95% confidence could be a customer tomorrow? And once you understand who that customer is and understand your value proposition, you can test that and you can see whether or not customers are willing to pay for that. Why, why do you think it is that uh, it is so popular among California tech companies and I guess tech companies all over the place to put off getting a customer for quite some time? And there's some very famous examples who seem to have done that successfully. Magic Leap is a virtual reality company that spent 10 years in stealth raising $800 million. Many self-driving car companies aren't actually doing a self-driving service for anybody. They're purely working on technology, even while others actually do have customers. It's it's a popular thing uh, in in the Valley to not go after a customer so early. Why do you think that is, and, and what's the detriment to it? Well, I think they do have a customer, and that's the investor. The customer, these guys are spinning a yarn, a charming yarn, I'm sure, talking about, uh, well, what a wonderful world it could be. 
And if people believe in that and believe in the technology, I'm talking about investors, and are willing to sit with a guy and invest $800 million on a promise, then that, is, that is successful, that is entrepreneur is successful. However, ultimately, long-term, there has to be a dollarized value proposition or that mystical customer will never appear. So I think it's kind of a, I, I, you know, I can't, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is a kind of an economic fad. And I think we've probably seen, and you would know more than I would, Adriel, but I think we've probably seen a lots of these companies that ultimately go belly up. And, you know, I know there are people that write about that and, you know, talking about companies like some of these food service companies, Blue Apron, I'm not sure I know the names, but people like that, where if you look at the economics, it just seems impossible to make money. And so it'll be, you know, it'll be be popular for a while. Customers don't mind getting something literally below cost. But will they ever be able to make a sustainable business financial model? I don't know. And so if I were an investor, I'd be saying, okay, who's the current customer or who could be the customer? Let's go talk to them and see if they, if we make it, will they buy it? Yeah, my, my girlfriend's mother actually sent us an article from The Atlantic a few months ago uh, talking about how our generation is, has, is the subsidized generation where everything <laughs> we get, all of our food delivery, all of our office space, all of our taxi rides are subsidized by investors. So we actually think life is a lot cheaper than it really is because right. nobody has extracted the true value from their customers that, that they need to in order to survive. The, a lot of these new, especially these service proxies like Uber, Lyft, and uh, office rental places and stuff like that, what they're doing is they're tapping into an existing market, whether it's bricks and mortar or whatever, that had a business model that that was earned in the competitive world. And they're simply coming in with a lower-priced product. Now, is it lower cost? I don't know, but, but it's lower-priced. And price is the, the price is the cutting lever for profitability. So I don't know whether Uber and Lyft and workplaces or whatever these crazy things are Will, will continue to exist if they don't become positive cash flow based on the difference between their price and their true costs. I just don't see how cutting the price of a taxi ride by 30%, 40% makes economic sense. It's great for the customer. It's great for us. It's great for the subsidized generation, which is a great line, by the way. Um, but I don't see it necessarily being long-term. I could be wrong. But if you do the, I mean, I, I did the math because we were debating in our family about these home food delivery services. And when you add it up, when you add up the ingredients, the packaging, the assembly, the outer packaging, whether there's chill packs inside, the delivery costs, how can they make money? Those costs exceed the price of the product. So I don't know. Yeah, I think those are two great examples. And what's what's incredibly interesting to me is that these companies actually had an enormous amount of value beyond just price, right? Take Uber versus taxi cabs, for example. The fact that you can call it from your phone and the fact that you can pay through your phone, so it's this seamless transaction, is so much more valuable to me than, than waiting for hopefully an empty cab to come by and then afterwards spending four minutes dealing with either paying cash or credit card, that I would happily pay an extra 5% on top of my taxi cab standard for Uber. Or you Absolutely. Take that is exactly right. They do not know their value proposition. They don't go out and, and ride in a cab with someone that doesn't speak English, can barely understand uh, the GPS to where to go. The cab smells like a dead goat. And we're and it's ripped and torn and shredded, and the guy doesn't even own the cab and could care less about his condition. Whereas we could get a nice new car by by a friendly person. I would totally pay a premium for that because it deserves a premium. It used to drive me crazy when Amazon first started and we kind of started together a little bit. I think one of my first books was when Amazon was primarily books was like a bestseller on Amazon, 
And in those days, you could actually call up and talk to people there. Um, and I, and so a new book would come out, my publisher would announce it, and readers of my other books would call and pre-order, pre-order, five, six hundred copies or more, I don't know how many, at the full retail price. And when the book was, was finally published and printed in an inventory at Amazon, they would sell it for $4 less than the retail price. And they would ship it to the customer. And the customer didn't have to get up and get in their car, spend gasoline money, drive to a store, park in the thing, and go around and save, and save them hours and stuff. Why? I used to call them. I said, why would you ever discount the product? They've already paid for it, and you give them a discount. And what are they supposed to say? Oh, I love Amazon? I mean, that, that doesn't, it never made sense to me. And, of course, if you look at Amazon's business and you look at their retail business, they make their, their net profit on their retail business is .008 something. So if they didn't have Amazon Web Services and other things like this, that company would never make it doesn't have any return at all on its, like, I don't know what percentage of their overall revenues are the retail business, but that's what they make. They make less than 1%. That's not a sustainable model, in my view. But what did I know? They're the richest, he's the richest guy in the world, so he's known something. <laughs> uh, what do you think are some of the other mistakes that tech companies make that feel very blatant to you? Well, I think they're always trying to be cool, you know? They're always trying to uh, be jargony and try to be technically smarter than their customer. That's more business to business than it is business to consumer. But they're always trying to uh, impress instead of express. So when you ever have a sales call by some of these guys selling storage space on the cloud or something, they're always giving you a jargon that makes them, up in their minds, appear smarter. And it doesn't explain. That's a very big error, I think. And you will see that a lot of companies, when the early adopters who speak the same jargon, or like to assume they do, when the early adopters are, are done, the market gets very difficult. Because now you got to talk to people who don't care about the jargon. They care about a return on their investment. That's a mistake. I think there's a, other mistakes are how they try to do these work environments, you know, like to be the coolest place on the planet and play ping pong all day and all that. Okay, maybe that's the new generation. But how does that help you with the customer? Is that a retention strategy, keeping employees? If so, it's a good one. I'll, I'll give you an example where old-fashioned business and great um, approach to their employees, if, if you're trying to be cool, is Costco. Go to Costco. I don't know their financials, and I don't know if they make a lot of money, but one of the biggest costs in retail marketing and retail trade is, is employee turnover. And you'll know that the average, average turnover at some retail chains, uh, the lousy ones, is, you know, approaches 30 35% a year. So I'm checking out of Costco, and I always do this. This is part of my job, I guess. I asked the guy, and he's checking you out at the cash register. I said, what kind of a joint is this to work for? He said, it's wonderful. He said, really? I said, tell me why. He said, well, I make $25 an hour checking out people. I get X amount of uh, health uh, benefits. They're perfect. I get vacation days, no uh, personal business days, off days, all this kind of stuff. And I also have $600,000 worth of stock. This is the guy checking us out at the, at the cash register. He said, I'll never leave this company. And I tell all my friends they should come to work for Costco. So Costco has reduced costs of inventory, I mean of turnover. And if you do the math on turnover, it's brutal. You lose all the training, benefits. you got to check a guy out again. you got to go back through the the interviewing process, management time, police records, on and on and on. The cost of turnover at retail is mind-boggling. And so myopic retailers pay people low. And guess what they get? People who are susceptible to a nickel an hour more someplace else. So, you know, the, the startup companies 
should look to some of these other companies that have fought their way to the to the, the top of their market uh, in very competitive business environments. They would learn from them. And of course, in my particular job, and I'm consigliere to CEOs and things like that, we constantly see companies that have bright young engineers and bright young managers and innovative thinkers who have no business uh, experience or and now I don't want to be prejudicial against them, but they don't have that kind of they don't have the the, the medals you get by being uh, rejected and denied and lose business and all that kind of thing. So they talk, they talk in blue sky, and and they work hard, but they don't work hard at the things that maintain a business: planning, costing, uh, you know, scaling, those kind of things. In my view. So there, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, everything from tech companies, especially startups, loving to throw around jargon. Uh, and I see this in my own experience. You know, I work for a self-driving car company leading sales. It is very, very desirable to talk about acronyms like ODDs or uh, millisecond latencies of teleoperations or things like that where it doesn't sure. really mean anything to the customer. And if anything, it makes me seem a little bit arrogant and uh, not approachable or like I don't even know how to speak the language. But the one I, I do want to actually comment on where you talk about employee retention, I think that's a really interesting point because when we think about super, super small companies, super early stage companies, you know, folks who are five or 10 people doing this for the first time, there's no way that they can compete against Facebook or Google or Pinterest for perks and free food and uh, nap pods and ping pong tables. So when they're competing for talent and they're competing for their retention, this is one place where I have a theory that it's the sales person, whoever is leading sales, that has an outsized impact on the culture of an early stage company. Because totally. the, the one thing that a small company can compete on is small wins and successes and something to celebrate. So if a salesperson can deliver that, then they can help employees stay excited. They can help employees be creative. They can help attract employees. And that's why the salesperson in the early stage is so important to things like employee retention, like you mentioned, to developing culture and all the rest of it. Totally. And, as, and because hopefully the founder is a rainmaker. If he's not a rainmaker or he or she is not a rainmaker or the founders are not a rainmakers, the first person they should hire is a rainmaker, someone who can sell the future someone who can sell the promise and prove with sales that the business is real. And that attracts other kinds of people willing to bet on themselves when they bet on the future. So that's a psychic type of, of income and a psychic type of retention. It tends to attract the bravest and uh, the brightest, but again, you have to deliver at some point in time. It, it, a com all companies have to understand that there are only four factors for enduring business success, and they are marketing, innovation, winning culture, and wise leadership. Marketing, the long definition, is the identification, attraction, getting and keeping of okay customers. And you, you define okay yourself. Innovation, of course, is that new and novel stuff, whether it's products or ways to answer the phone or whatever. Winning culture is not good or bad. It's winning. So, for example, Goldman Sachs on Wall Street, people might not think that's their kind of culture. They may think it's toxic. It doesn't matter. It's a winning culture. A Navy SEAL is a winning culture. New York Yankees have a winning culture. But winning culture and wise leadership are inextricably linked. And if the guy starts the business out, understanding that every single employee, every single employee must be tied directly and indirectly to profitable revenues. And I don't care if it's an engineer that they bury down in the fourth floor underground. They, that person is directly or indirectly tied to the getting and keeping of revenues. So you must have a sales culture. You must have a sales culture or inevitably the company will fail to companies that do. A lot of technical companies out there, products, and I, I hear from them a lot, heard from one the other day, 
and the guy said to me, you know, Jeffrey, our products are, are, are technically superior to everybody else. I said, then why do you lose any sales? Nothing. No answer. The answer is because they can't sell it. They talk about it. They intimidate. They use like you, the, some of the, you know, you never should. Here's a rule. Don't use an acronym unless it's a brand name. What's, a, what's an acronym brand name? Well, SCUBA, Subcontained Underwater Breathing Apparatus, it's an acronym. It became a brand name. That's okay. You know, maybe IBM is okay. But you look at a business card from some guy and it's, you know, CCLU, da-da-da-da-da. Oh, another, another mistake, at least in my view, it's maybe de rigueur and cool and current, is all these ridiculous titles everybody has. You know, I'm the chairman of the happiness committee or stuff like that. It's stupid. You know, you got to be, you got to be kind of real. And so, um, you know, again, I've been around so I can make these comments, but I'm telling you, it's far easier that when someone says, what do you do? And says, I'm a bricklayer that he knows not I'm a COFMGP or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we were having a conversation the other day with our marketing team about uh, how to build a certain page on our site. And while they were pushing for a lot of jargon, I was pushing the opposite way. And what we got into is, hey, look, when you buy a computer, when you buy a laptop today, which, which I'm doing now because my Mac is busted, but when you buy a laptop today, it'll tell you things that you don't necessarily understand, but you know to look for. You'll, tell, you'll know that there's an Intel uh, Generation 8 processor or it's got... 64 gigs or you're looking for a certain ram and there's certain things that you don't know but still they put it in there and my theory and i'd love to test this with you jeff is that because people have been buying laptops for something like 15 years already that the customer is educated enough and evolved enough where if i don't know exactly what ram is i still know that i should be looking for it and asking those questions whereas if you're using a new technology you need to be spend the next decade or so educating people about uh, how this technology works, getting to this sort of majority adoption before you ever can expect your customers to be speaking the same language as you. So that's why I, I think it works for laptops and it doesn't work for virtual reality headsets or uh, you know, new cryptocurrency investment methodologies. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think what happens is, I think you're right. I think what happens is certain things become so commonly stated that they come to have a kind of a life of their own. Uh, the other day we did a little experiment with some companies and I took the most common acronyms that you see in some of the technology stuff like Ram and gigabyte and PDF and Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi stuff like that. And says, what does this mean? And nobody knew the answer to any of them. Nobody knew what the original acronym stood for. Now, I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent, but I'll tell you what, the cost of educating that customer is significantly higher if you speak a language they do not understand. When I had a real job before Fox and Company, one of my jobs was I was head of marketing for the Loctite Corporation, a wonderful company that's since been acquired by Henkel out of Germany. They make super glue and products like that. I went in there, and the company was small at the time, and their marketing literature and on their packaging and everything, it was one of them was the product was called 242, a thixotropic anaerobic. <laughs> and I said, and I'm first day on the job as director of marketing, I said, what does that mean? So what does 242 mean? Oh, that's our number for thread locker. I said, why do you call it 242? Oh, because that's the way we've always done it. I said, okay. And what does thixotropic mean? And they said, well, that's like ketchup. If you hit it, the bottle of ketchup, it starts moving. That's thixotropic. So what does anaerobic mean? So it cures in the absence of air. So I said, okay. The next day I changed everything. 242 became threadlocker. 258 became, you know, bolt locker and stuff like that. I never used any of that jargon again. Guess what? The business started to double. Why? Because the customers weren't intimidated. They could decide for themselves. They didn't need a salesperson in front of them to buy every little $12 bottle of product. 
we at Fox and Company, one of our early, early understandings was we turn our clients' jargon into sellable English. And it doesn't have to be high tech, Adriel. It is every type of tech. Utilities. What's an ohm? You know, what's a, a megawatt? What's a kilowatt? People understand roughly after a thousand years, it's something. But how do you, so if you're coming out with a new, if you're coming out with a competitive product against some of these entrenched and and entrenched uh, of all all ages of your technology, it's disruptive if you come up with understandable, meaningful language. And I think you see that a little bit with the drift in brand names away from, you know, the some that make it like Google to, you know, ring-a-ding or whatever it is on the on the on the doorstep these days, a little bit better branding, I think you're seeing, and that reduces your cost of selling. That reduces your cost of advertising. And the other problem, we're talking about your marketing people with the website, put in jargon is a way, a very subtle way to help the salesperson, the marketing person avoid rejection. Because if the customer rejects the jargon, they're not rejecting the salesperson. And, and typically, when people use jargon in websites, advertising, sales pitches, and everything else, they also use the pronouns I, me, we, ours, us. And that's wrong. The pronoun should always be you. So when it's about me and us and we, we lose. When it's about you, we win. So you often see jargon-oriented marketers also tying in with personal pronouns. That's the biggest conceit on the planet, and they have no idea they're doing it. Zero. Zero. So you – and they've done a, they did a study at um, Cornell School of uh, – the restaurant schools up in Cornell, hotel management, whatever it is. And they found that waiters, wait staff, people that said, you can get a nice uh, glass of white wine, made more money in tips than people say, I have a beautiful wine for you. Or let me check in the kitchen. I'll have, I'm, we're, in other words, the you is about the customer. The I and me and we is about the seller. And customers don't care about the sellers. They only care about themselves. Customers only care about their problems, not yours. And customers, if you lose a customer because you bamboozled them, befuddled them with language, they'll never tell you that. They'll just go away. Yeah, I think the the best way I've ever heard that put is customers care about outputs, not inputs. They sure. care about what they get out of the thing. I think one of the famous examples of this being done in marketing was when Steve Jobs called the iPod something that gives you a thousand songs in your pocket. It wasn't it's something great, with... It, it, it's a brilliant positioning. Brilliant. Absolutely. It wasn't something with 16 gigabytes of RAM or unlimited right. scrolling potential trackpad, whatever. All it was was what the customer wanted, which was a thousand songs in your pocket. And, and, and that's called positioning. And so some of the great positionings and a positioning is when you take a new product and you, and the customer, you, you leave a leg in the old market category and a leg in the new. So you bridge. So a thousand songs in your pocket bridges the customer, customer knows what a thousand songs are. They know what their pocket is. They've never been able to do it before. And cl classic examples of that are the horseless carriage, which is how they positioned the early automobiles. Automatic teller machine. You know what a teller is. Now you know what automatic is. So now you have a teller in the machine. And do you care when you're in Turkey and you put in your credit card and out comes Turkish money? How do they do it? They have a little guy in there stuffing money through the slot. You don't care. You're amazed that not only does it come out, it comes out in the right denominations and then it comes out in the right currency equivalencies. You don't care how that works. So I, I've got clients that are so high tech you can't believe it. They got 500 PhDs just to, in, to, to uh, invent the product. But what you do is you change their language into the language a customer can understand. Nobody cares about technology. Nobody. Nobody in the world cares how a fax machine works, how GPS works. 
They don't care how an iPad works. They care what they get out of that product. And yeah, that, require, that requires discipline and intellectual marketing. And, it's some, and positioning is one of the most difficult of marketing challenges. There's a, a quote by the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke, that is something along the lines of any sufficiently advanced technology is indiscernible from magic. You need to have the thing, <laughs> you need to have it just work. And then how the magic trick is done, nobody cares. They're just going to applaud, buy the ticket, tell their friends, uh, and, and keep going on. Uh, That's right. I, I want to spend our, our last few minutes here on rainmaking. Um, you, okay. mentioned, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, I, I would love for you to define what a rainmaker is. And also, uh, so oftentimes on the podcast, we talk about how in an early stage company, it's the CEO that should be doing those early sales. And there's a lot of value to that. However, sometimes, like you mentioned, if the CEO is not that rainmaker themselves, they need to go out and find a rainmaker. So That's right. help, help me understand what a rainmaker is and help me understand how to look for one and when I know it's, it's time for my company to bring one in. Well, a rainmaker is like the Indian guy, the witch doctor or whatever, out in the fields in the old days would dance and dance and do his thing and do mojo and the rain would come down and the crops would grow and the people would flourish. So a rainmaker in a company is that person of all any age, any size, any look, any ethnicity, anything, who brings in the business, who keeps the really important but un, uh, unhappy customer, who can sell a price increase. And rainmakers do this regardless of economic conditions, regardless of competition, regardless of problems in the home office that they didn't ship on time. Rainmakers are people, and, and the way you can tell there's one there's a one characteristic, one characteristic that distinguishes the rainmaker from the ordinary salesperson. It's not that they're more charming or they're better planning, which is good, or they can handle objections, which is good, and all those kind of things. The characteristic, the single characteristic that distinguishes the rainmaker from the ordinary salesperson is that he or she sells more, and they sell more without discounting. They sell more gross margin revenues. That's a rainmaker. Now, hiring is a very tricky thing. I've come to learn after being uh, mistaken many times is that the hiring manager, someone like yourself, hiring a regional manager, hiring a new salesperson, whatever, you don't really do the hiring. You do the facilitating. The, the salesperson, the candidate, hires or fires themselves. They, himself, herself, they fire themselves. You make it crystal clear, Mr. Candidate, this is what is expected. This is how you're compensated. These are the tools we have. These are the tools we don't have. I'm telling you, Mr. Candidate, only you know if you can do this job. Only you know if you can sell this product, if you can sell this product without discounting, if you can call on the ugliest customer in the world, if you can make the fearless sales call, if you can wait 10 days before the guy finally agrees to see you. Only you know that. Now, Mr. Candidate, Mrs. Miss Candidate, ask me any question you want, any question at all. I'll answer the best of my ability. And afterwards, if the chemistry is right and we like you and we offer you a job, keep in mind you've hired yourself and you also fire yourself. That's the way I do it now. Yeah, that, that hustle, I think, in, in at least uh, when, when you're just starting out, is so important because when you don't have any brand and you don't have any technology sometimes and all you're working off of is the ability to get in front of a customer, understand their problems, sell them the value that you're working on. That takes, it's not sending out a thousand cold emails and it's not scrolling yeah. through LinkedIn looking for the right person. It is, it is showing up in immensely creative ways and it is 
uh, stomping through puddles and making a bit of a mess as you try things out. And that, that is a, a tough thing to hire for. But I agree, if you don't have somebody like that early on, ideally that person is you, the founder, at least in the beginning. But if you don't have somebody who's going to go uh, make a splash somewhere and, and get out there and ask tough questions in front of people and, and, and do all that, uh, it's a tough environment in which to build that winning culture you talked about. You want people with grit, G-R-I-T, people with grit. Grit is the number one personality characteristic of successful people. They have grit. As Joe, as Jack Dempsey, heavyweight champion, said, he won 60 fights, 50 by knockouts. Champions get up when they can't. That's what you look for. It ain't easy. Not a lot of people out there. But if they believe in themselves and they believe in the people they work with and they believe in the product and they like the customers and they're going to make a lot of money, you'll find them. That's right. To, to quote another heavyweight champ, uh, Iron Mike Tyson, you got to do what the competition is not willing to do. This That's right. cr- crazy lunatic would run around northeastern winters at 3 a.m. in the snow just because he knew whoever he was fighting was not going to do that. That's right. That's right. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Uh, And by the way, by the way, smart customers appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. And I can, I can speak to that personally, having been in early stage startups uh, my, my whole life, customers who are used to somebody just dialing it in and sending a couple cold emails and ah, well struggling if it doesn't happen. When you show up in front of their office when you send them a card, when you stake out outside of their building because they said they'd meet you Friday, but they couldn't, but you might as well stay the weekend and meet them on Monday. If you have the guts and the, the temerity to do that, uh, that gets noticed. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and the other thing that a rainmaker does, a rainmaker shows the customer what their salespeople should be doing. That's, if you can ever, in a situation with a customer, sort of become a, a, uh, an example uh, of what their salespeople should be doing, you'll get the business. I can't tell you how many times I've heard guys say, geez, I wish our guys would do this. Why don't they? Absolutely. Oh, well, so we usually end these podcasts on a bit of a rapid fire segment. And that's such a perfect lead in because my first question is always, are there any sales or startup books that have been helpful to you? But quickly to answer that myself, what you just talked about is, is a book I'm in the middle of called The Challenger Sale uh, okay. by Matt Dixon and Brent Adamson. And the point is exactly that. It's, uh, the, the salespeople who do the best are the ones who push their customers forward they're the ones who challenge their customers to think about, hey, why aren't your team members doing what I'm doing? Don't you want an environment like I am bringing to you? Well, that's why you should hire us. Uh, yeah. what, what about for you? Are there any, are any sales books that have been particularly helpful besides the, the dozen that you have written? Well, I, when I was a kid growing up, I used to read a lot of different stuff. And, and a lot of times it may not have been sales per se, but reading the biography of Eddie Rickenbacker, I remember he sold – bones on the streets of New York City when he was five years old and you know David Ogilvy writing on advertising and uh you know how they would get customers I, I didn't really know it was about sales so books by people who have done it biographies or autobiographies I find to be uh very in, in, instructive yeah agreed uh what is the sale you are most proud of landing huh I'm proud of a lot of them, to be honest with you. I like, I, but I have done ones where, you know, three years later, the guy called up and he said, you still interested in working for us? <laughs> and, and, he, and I say, well, of course. He said, is the price the same? I said, the price is not the same, but the value is. <laughs> and, he, and then uh, I think uh, getting my books published, um, you know, getting a publisher to do that. I also sold a, uh, client's business to a strategic buyer, took them all over the country, showed them all the chief top financial guys and all the deal makers and everything. And when it was all said and done, the senior group said, look, it's just a sale. And you're the best salesman we know. So you sell it for us, which I did. 
I love it. Uh, what is a well-known company that you would have loved leaving, leading sales for in its earliest stages? I would have loved to have, uh, it's probably not the right answer, uh, to run a major league uh, professional team. Uh, the combination of getting the great managers and the great scouts and players and fans using the brand. That's always been a, something I'd like to have done, but I don't think that's the right answer. I think um, that's a great answer. Okay. I, I love it. Unique. <laughs> uh, what, what has been your best failure? Or in other words, a failure that maybe has later led to any sort of unexpected success? Well, to me, a failure is, and this is going to sound trite and cliched and all that jazz, but a failure to me is more of a step on the way to the win. So when you failed at one approach, you don't have to repeat that. The people who do repeat it are dumb. So I remember when I had a real job and I was director of new products for a company at the time called Hubline. It, it was ultimately sold and became Diageo, but they were in the wine and spirits business. They had brands like Smirnoff and, uh, you know, A1 sauce and stuff like that. And that was probably 30 years or 40 years ahead of my time. And I had this idea for a product called Pop, P-O-P, Pop Tails, which is a combination. That was the, the category I created. It was a combination of, of uh, sort of a, a, a alcoholic spirit of some sort with like orange soda or uh, raspberry or something like that, a combination of flavors, flavors and everything. And it was coming in these little bottles and, and all that kind of stuff. And I had great products, I great brand names and orange smash and things like that. And so we took it out to focus groups and it was a dud. It was a complete parents would say, moms would say, I don't want that product in my, in my house. My kids will think it's soda and drink it. And then, and the hardcore people say, I'm not going to drink a baby product like that, et cetera. And matter of fact, got so bad, we're doing focus groups in Los Angeles. Two of the people in the focus group fell asleep. So I knew <laughs> I had a failure. I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was new and novel. Of course, you walk into the stores today, and that's all you see are flavored products. But So that was a failure. But it, to me, and I've had a lot of those. I've had a lot of those where we've introduced a, a new product um, I mean, it's very – when you do a lot of testing, when you get positives, that doesn't mean you have a success. When you get negatives, however, it does mean you have a failure. So on new product ventures and things like that, new businesses, yeah, we've had failures. Um, but I think I've, I look at it more as, oh, okay, let's not try it that way again. That's my, my personal opinion, my view, my, my sort of – insight. I, I love that story. Uh, Jeff, listen, I, this has been a, an absolute honor and a ton of fun. Where can people learn more about you, about your work, about your uh, 11, I think now books? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I just published a, a children's book. I did a specialty publisher because my agent didn't think my brand name went with that, but, and you know, and that's called the adventures of flash and abandoned homeless pot-bellied pig. I'm hoping to be able to put it on Amazon next week. Um, but we have a website, boxingcompany.com, I guess it is. Um, and, you know, all the usual places. And I think now, I think under my brand name, my name, because I wrote, I ghost wrote two books for clients. I think um, under my name, there's like 13 Jeffrey Fox books. I think maybe it is 11, maybe 12, I don't know. And there are about 235 foreign language editions of my books, and a lot of them are audio. So I'm going to be introducing in 2020, I'm definitely going to be uh, publishing at least two, probably three books this year. I just finished some manuscript on a book. It's out there with a couple of publishers. Uh, that will be probably out this year. It's called The Table. Um, work. Uh, excuse me, life and work lessons learned at the table. And the table is a light motif. It's not just the kitchen table. It's the card table, ping pong table, refectory table, and all that kind of stuff. And that's uh, in the very early, early days. But, um, you know, I think the, the website is a good place to start. I haven't looked at it in a long time myself, though.
<laughs> Jeez, well, writing three books this year, 13 in the past, the children's book, you got to leave some for the rest of us, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> this children's book is real good. It's a modern fairy tale. It's based on a true story where uh, on, a, on the island where we live, and I didn't name the island where we live in the book for legal reasons and so forth, but um, a guy, a, a family abandoned a pot-bellied pig, Vietnamese pot-bellied pig. They came down, stayed for a couple of weeks, left, and 60% of the island is preserved. And, and the, Pat's name, the, the pig's name was Flash, and he learned to live off the land. And, at any rate, he damaged some airplanes that are on this little single propeller airplanes on the grass strip we have. And a guy, an owner, shot him twice in the head and buried him. And three days later, he he dug himself up out of the grave. He wasn't really shot. He was the bullets glanced off his head. Based on that, those facts, uh, we have a modern fairy tale. And what uh, some modern parents don't understand is that kids know there are dragons. They just have to know there are dragon slayers. And so fairy tales are a very good way for kids to deal with their fears. And one of the biggest fears of children is being abandoned. And that's what Flash was. And so kids can vicariously experience it's called in literature i think it's called an orphan hero you know huckleberry finn tom sawyer moses harry potter those are orphan heroes and that's what flash is and i think this book is going to be a lot of fun for a lot of people uh not very long um and i have another innovation in it put a glossary in it illustrated glossary so they could understand all the fauna and flora and calusa indians and all that kind of stuff kind of fun <laughs> that 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 is fantastic as a fantasy uh geek myself uh, i might yeah. get a copy i'm sure i got something to learn yeah well I, hopefully it's, i'm going to be able to make it available to everybody I, I this is a specialty publisher and i tried this only because my brand is different than business and they just uh they directly sell into uh, uh all kinds of distributors that sell to like a, a costco for example or staples or to corporations to the airport stores that kind of thing so um, we'll do the other part myself. Awesome. I love it. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. You're very, very welcome. Anytime. Well, there you have it. Jeffrey J. Fox, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to learn more about Jeff, check out his site, foxandcompany.com find any of his dozen books, How to Become a Rainmaker, How to Be a Great Boss, or The Dollarization Principle being a couple of my favorites. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review and a rating. They mean so, so much on Apple Podcasts. And you can find me all over the interwebs at A. Lubarsky 2 Happy selling.